0: Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your host and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr.
1: Funkenstein. What's up, Tim? Hey, what's going on, Jeremy? Tough week. Tough week for me. Found out that my employment at my current uh, organization will end at the end of February, so a little bit bummed about that, but you know, one door closes and a thousand more open, so we'll see what happens, right?
0: Yeah. Just got to get out there. It's,
1: uh, it's ultimately, it's going to be a good thing for you, Jeremy. I know. Appreciate that, Tim. And I guess it's karma for quitting on you and going to a competitor and beating you time and well, time I, again.
0: Every time you tell me that, I feel a little bit better about that.
1: <laughs> We've got Mark Viviano on today calling in at a Boston. Viva La Viviano is is what we're calling this. Um, I'm really excited about this one, Tim, because um Mark's name kind of made it out there in the news. He's with Kimmeridge, and Mark's going to tell us a little bit what Kimmeridge is is all about. Um, but I, I first found out about Kimmeridge because – they have an oil and gas company uh, here in Denver. There's also a company associated with called um, Desert Peak Minerals, which I think is a, a Permian-based minerals and, and non-op company. So they've kind of expanded their reach from, I think, what is a New York-based kind of financial firm to the oil and gas industry. And uh, Mark's been in the news a little bit lately uh, talking about some of the reform that he's looking to create and, and see in the oil and gas industry. So we're going to talk a, about a whole bunch of, of topics today.
0: Yeah, I did a little bit of research, listened to some of the other podcasts he's been on. So he's no stranger to doing podcasts. So I've got, I've got a lot of questions. I got a lot of definitions. I want to understand what a dedicated activist fund
1: is anyway. So the bar's high for you, Mark, man. You're, you're experienced, right? You're, you're a Boston guy. Let's, let's do this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing in New York and then uh, what brought you to Boston and ultimately oil and gas?
2: Sure. I'd be happy to, and, and great to be here with you guys today. Looking forward to this conversation. So I, I grew up in the, the suburbs of New York City. I had a fairly typical childhood. I was the middle of three boys. My mom was at home while we were at kids, and then she went back to work as a preschool teacher. My, my father awesome. worked in, in finance for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals in Midtown Manhattan. As, as a side note, he actually just got the Pfizer vaccine two weeks ago. So I think that was a proud moment nice. for him as an alumni to come, to come full, full circle with the company. Um, but anyway, I mean, you can't tell from, from zoom or the the podcast, but I'm, I'm pretty tall. I'm, I'm six foot six. And so pretty early on, my dad said, you're going to learn to play basketball. And uh, <laughs>
0: by the way, I just want to point this out. You're not the tallest, not the tallest. guy on this show. No, right? <laughs>
1: well, Tomas is what? Like seven foot. He's seven, seven foot, a seven footer. Yeah.
2: Wow. Um, I'll tell you, as somebody who's six foot six, when I get into the elevator with anybody taller, it's a very intimidating moment for me. <laughs> Uncomfortable, not <laughs> hysteria.
1: Very, very uncommon, too, right?
2: Exactly. Uh, so I was dragged into to into playing basketball a little bit as a kid. I, I actually preferred to play baseball, but then then grew to love the game. And and I had played basketball in high school and, and wanted to continue playing, which generally restricted my my college search to Division three schools. I, I admittedly wasn't good enough to play D one. And so I ended up going to Hamilton College, which is, you know, for people that don't know, a, a small liberal arts school, around 1,600 people in, in upstate New York. And I really didn't have any great career ambitions and admittedly was probably more focused on basketball, but, but I had a sense I wanted to do something in finance and, and I ended up majoring in economics. So then the time came to graduate and I quickly learned that an economics degree doesn't really qualify you for anything. And uh, so I didn't have a job when I graduated. And I, uh, I ended up just moving to Boston, mostly because a lot of my teammates were, were from there. Uh, I knew if I worked in New York City, I'd end up live, living at home, just given the convenience and the, and the cost. So, I really wanted to go out and do something different and, and explore a little bit. So, I moved to Boston, ended up getting a job at a bank doing mutual fund accounting, which it's essentially back office work for the asset management industry and Like a lot of people quickly realized I wanted to be the one investing the money rather than the guy reconciling uh, the positions. For sure. And so within two years, I had gotten a call from a headhunter looking to hire somebody at Wellington Management. And it was for an operational role, which obviously wasn't what I was looking to do. But but I figured joining a well-respected asset manager would at least get me a step closer to what I really wanted to do. So I took that job and then did everything I could to bolster my credentials over the next couple years to move over to the investment side. So I went back to school at night. I got a master's degree from Boston University. I I pursued my CFA charter, which for people don't know is a series of three annual exams Mm -hmm. that that have a fairly daunting pass rate. And then I started interviewing internally for research associate positions, which was effectively the the entry-level investment job. I'd gotten close on a couple different roles, uh, one of which I was i was the finalist and, and I lost out on the job, was getting somewhat discouraged, thinking maybe I got to look outside the firm. And then the job opened up for a research associate on the energy team. And uh, mm-hmm. long story short, I ended up getting that position, which was pretty fortunate because this was 2004. And and so, I got in right before the sector really took off. Yeah, That obviously helped a lot when you think about visibility within a big firm like Wellington. So, within a couple of years, I was promoted uh, from an associate to an analyst, and, and given my own research coverage. And, and that, that's really kind of how I started uh, analyzing and investing uh, in the energy sector.
1: Oh, that's cool. So now you've been at it for 17 years.
2: <laughs> yeah, glutton for punishment, I guess.
1: <laughs> Lately. Uh, a lot of good stuff, Tim. It's like kind of a combination a little bit about you know Tomas's height Right And David Forsberg's uh, you know, economics and finance background. So um, we've got a little familiarity with, with some of the things you're throwing out there. But uh, what I'm curious about is, have you ever actually, like, have you been to the oil field? Have you gone to oil wells as, as part of your due diligence? Or is it primarily looking at uh, the numbers and trying to make sense of it all that way?
2: No, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's boots on the ground. Um, you know, that's a, that's a big part of the research process and, and the benefit of, of working at a place like Wellington was having access to, you know, not just the, the CEOs and, and boards, but the operational teams and the ability to go on, on different field trips and, and uh, definitely had some adventures over my time. And, and you have to remember when I started, so 04 to, to 08, um, it, was all, it was all international. Right. It was it was uh, going yeah. around the world and seeing where where the incremental sources of oil production were coming from. It, it, was, uh, it was very different than than the last five years where all my trips were to Texas or, or Oklahoma. So totally. Um, yeah, I've got some got some good stories along the way.
0: So what you know, what's the kind of the most remote or strangest place to a layman anyway to, that you've been in the oil, oil and gas
2: business? Um, yeah, so. Go back to 2007. So I had just been promoted to an analyst. I come out with my my top recommendation to the firm. And it's this small company. Well, at the time, it was a small company called Lundin Petroleum. And uh, July 2008, basically the peak of the oil cycle, they, they yeah. announced a major oil discovery in Russia. And it was <sighs> off- offshore Caspian Sea. And, okay. and at the time, the CEO referred to it as a world-class discovery. And and remember, this is when the market was still rewarding offshore exploration success. So the company organized an investor trip to go to Russia to to tour the rig and and discuss the discovery with the the operational team. And at the time, we were actually the largest shareholder after the Lundin family. And and this was my big recommendation to the firm. So I felt like I should go on, on the trip. So I go to Sweden and then I fly over on the company's jet to Astrakhan, Russia, which is basically, it's it's a port city on the Volga Delta that's used to access the Caspian Sea. And this ends up being October, 2008. Lehman's gone bankrupt. The financial markets are melting down and which I was constantly reminded of as I looked at my BlackBerry. Um, <laughs> again, is dating this conversation. Um, but but I, I, so I land in this city in Astrakhan. It feels like time has stood still for like 20 years. It had that old Soviet feel to It, it seemed like no one, Knew or even cared what was going on in the financial markets, which was honestly refreshing. Um, but anyway, we end up taking this small boat out into the Caspian Sea, past these military checkpoints, to see the rig. And it's probably the least impressive rig you'll ever see for what's called mm-hmm. a world-class discovery, because this area of the Caspian Sea is really shallow, and so it's basically a jack-up rig on top of a in like kind of old piece together Soviet style. Um, wow. so anyway, make a long story. so Russia ends up being a bust. That first discovery was smaller than they hoped. They drilled a couple wells, and, and the whole thing was basically written off a year later. Ironically, this ends up being a great stock from 2009 to 2010, uh, because they end up discovering this multi-billion barrel Johans field that I'm sure everybody's heard of by now that's yeah, yeah. producing about half a million BOE a day. So it just shows you uh, the circumstances with, with investing. You know, we were right. On, I was stocked stock for the completely wrong reason. I actually had nothing to do with Russia. Ah, I like sometimes that. it's better to be lucky than good, right <laughs> Trust me, I, I could write a book on that
0: <laughs> so I mean I guess when you were heading out there for memory serves that i mean that was the the last time we saw a triple digit oil right
2: yeah i mean uh, that was that was kind of the beginning of the end obviously we had a a recovery in uh two thousand ten to two thousand and fourteen before really the 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 shale error took off and and crushed prices but but October 2008, I mean, was a was a time where the, the equities were going down 10% a day. The oil price was, was cratering. It was a pretty scary time to be in the financial world because it was beyond just uh, 2015, 2016 was challenging uh, if you were in the oil industry. But when the whole financial market is, is melting down around you and you work at a financial firm, it's a much scarier proposition.
1: Oh, no, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, it's funny that you're talking about that time period because I feel like with the the whole GameStop stock going crazy and Reddit, you know, moving markets, we've kind of been reminded of of that period of time because it's just there's so much craziness out there, right? It's, it's quite an interesting shift that the retail investor can move the market the way that it has lately with behind, you know, it, not really a ton of logic, but it, it happens, right?
2: Yeah, I'm just waiting for them to the, the oil market.
1: I think that's next. I don't know. I think it's coming. I'm sure there are podcasts dedicated to those types of things, margin call or, or whatever. But um, I, I think that's we're poised like the, This has been, like you said, Mark, a down swing really for six plus years at this point. I mean, a little bit of an uptick, uh, what, 17, 18, 19. And, and it's been kind of brutal the last seven years, at least compared to the six years before that.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's that's putting it mildly. It's been pretty devastating, you know, both for the industry itself and, and, and those of us that invest in it. Um, and, and, and I think we've, we've wiped out a lot of investors along the way. Um, for sure. But right now, I think there's there's probably a generational investment opportunity in the sector because sentiment's as bad as I've ever seen it. And, and I think the differentiator versus prior periods is the bearishness isn't cyclical in nature, right? It's not just about demand is weak, the price is low. Investors have structurally written off the sector because of these concerns around the the energy.
1: You know, I'm glad you brought this up because I was texting this morning with one of my friends who's an executive um, at an E&P company in Oklahoma, and he sent me a Barron's article that was like nicely laid out. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was like a really long article that talked about this is the time. Like You should probably have 10% of your uh, funds now dedicated to energy and, and not just oil and gas. Um, because we're kind of heading into a, a boom time, which was encouraging for me to see at least
2: yeah, and I, and I think you know the, the probability goes up when nobody believes it right and and I think that has to do with the access to capital and 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 for the first time we're actually seeing the inability to to, to access capital that's that's unfortunately what the problem was back in 2015, 2016 is is oil prices were low, but the availability of capital never really dried up. Yeah, I and, and I think that's the difference now, and it has to do with this issue around. There's tremendous pressure amongst investment firms not to own fossil fuels anymore, and you know the irony of that is, um, you know, I think we, we probably have uh, uh, the next big cycle in oil uh, because of the energy transition, not in spite of it, and, and I think that's you know, what people aren't recognizing.
0: A hundred percent agree. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So, and I'm, and again, going back here a little bit, but when you started. In the industry, when you moved into the the fund with Wellington, the talk of the industry, of course, was peak oil. Have we hit peak oil? Um, when will we hit peak oil? And, you know, ultimately, that's going to – the price is going to just grow uncontrollably. So, obviously, you know, big investments in div- different areas. Of course, everything's changed. And now we're all talking about peak demand. Um what have you? What's the change from your perspective on on the investor side? How does that change the way you approach the market that that cycle?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great point. I mean, I think the fundamental change that I've seen through my career is this notion of resource scarcity, right? So, so everything early on was built around this notion that we're we're running out of oil, and that if you can uh, discover and grow oil supply, you will be financially rewarded and. um, and that really was the mentality of, of the industry. That was the strategy that drove strategy across most of the, the companies in it. And it drove the way investors positioned in the sector. And, and as you know, Shell flipped that on its head. And, um, you know, the, 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 the issue now is not whether we have the resource. It's, it's the efficiency at which you can extract it um, and, and, and obviously the, the economics of it. Uh, but, but this idea that there is a resource scarcity, I think, has, has really been disproved. And what that means is that you're no longer going to get rewarded just for growing production. So, so yep. you really have to compete with other businesses. I mean, if I go back to my days at Wellington and think about the, the generalist portfolio managers, so the non energy folks, they actually never really believed in the EMP business model. They, they never really thought it created value. Uh, what they wanted was leverage to the commodity price because they, they thought oil prices would go up over time because of that resource scarcity, and, and, and they were concerned because a lot of their portfolios had inverse correlation to oil, which if oil spiked, retail and, and airlines, everything else would go down. So they so yep. they wanted to have a reasonable allocation to oil. And, um, you know, I think similar to, to what shale did to the resource scarcity notion, it, it really started putting a cap on oil prices where people said, well, oil can't go above 60 because the shale industry will just flood the market, which unfortunately they did they didn't prove uh, to do. <laughs> They did a good job of it. (laughs) It's happened. Uh, So now, now there's a lot of skepticism, and it's kind of guilty until proven innocent. And and we're hearing a lot of uh, rhetoric from from oil companies around renewed discipline and 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 evolution of the business model, things that we've been advocating for. Uh, But I can tell you, the the broader investment community is is, is skeptical, and I think it's going to take time to to disprove that fear uh, that that as the oil price moves up, uh, you'll see a supply response that caps. Uh, the the price move. So, so I think that we're at an interesting inflection here where depending on how the industry behaves, you can see a real shift in in sentiment towards the sector. I feel like we need to bring
0: DRW in now. (laughs) Let's
1: patch him in. in Dan Pickering Pickering could offer some, uh, some views on this too. Um, Really, really like this. I teased it a little bit early on uh, about Kimmeridge, but can you talk about Kimmeridge, what is Kimmeridge? um, Where's the company going? And uh, it seems like it's got a few different tentacles to it. So why don't you uh, school the audience a little bit, Mark?
2: Yeah, no, I definitely. I mean, I definitely think it's um, it's unclear to to a lot of people from the outside what what Kimmeridge is and what what we do. Um, You know, just by way of some background, Kimmeridge. So it's a private equity firm. It, It was founded back in 2012. And Ben Dell and, and Neil McMahon uh, were both sell-side analysts at Bernstein. I actually met them both back in, in 2004 when I started um, because they were kind of the highest ranked, the II number one sell-side analysts. And, and they had formerly worked at, at BP together, so they had a, a, a real industry and technical background. And, and they were covering the shale industry at Bernstein. And they thought, if, if we believe our own research on, on the prospectivity of some of these shale basins, then we should be investing in it. Rather than writing about it, Um, so so they they started investing directly, uh, acquiring acreage first within Bernstein, uh, and then that launched Kimmeridge launched Kimmeridge as a separate private equity firm. And you know, you you highlighted it at the beginning of of the conversation. But what's unique about Kimmeridge is that instead of backing management teams with portfolio companies, Cambridge has its own in-house technical and, and operating team out in, in Denver. So we've got yep. geologists, geophysicists, reservoir engineers. Um, and, and I think that's a key differentiator for us when, when we look at investing in both public and, and private markets.
1: It's a, it, the office in Denver is beautiful too. I don't know if you've been out or seen it, but I mean, the, the views from that office are spectacular.
2: Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I've only seen it over Zoom because uh, uh, I, I joined in February of last year and, and I haven't traveled since, but, but I'm uh, eagerly looking forward to the day I can make it out to Denver.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it is it is interesting, too, because I do feel like, you know, it, because of the structure of the organization, they are somewhat left alone to to do their own business versus kind of micromanaged by the, the PE firm, right? Let the experts do their job and uh, we'll help make this thing profitable. But Cambridge really hit my radar um, with, you know, some of the how should I say this, ways that you guys have made some suggestions in the industry to be more uh, disciplined financially um, and and certainly have have kind of targeted a, a number of different small and, and mid-cap EMPs. When you think about financial discipline for an oil and gas
2: company, what does that mean to high level? Uh, it, it means not putting all of your money back in the ground um, and, and trying to grow production. So if you look at the last 10 years for the US EMP industry the uh, reinvestment ratio which is a it's a simple metric it just looks at how much of your cash flow did you spend in capex right and the average s&p 500 company that that ratio is 40% so every dollar in cash flow 40 cents of that is is reinvested back into their business okay uh, the the average for the emp industry over the last 10 years was 130% Oh wow! It's not a sustainable business model, right? You're 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 spending beyond your means, which is a function of there was external capital available through the debt and equity markets. Uh, The industry and and for a while the investment community thought you'd get rewarded for growing reserves and production, and so you were constantly reinvesting um, at rates that were higher than your internal cash flow generation. And so what we came out with last February when we published our first white paper on on the need to reform the industry was we said that the industry should not be spending more than 70% of its cash flow that for obvious reasons it's going to be higher than the S&P 500 average it's a it's a capital intensive sector you know, we, we all know the the treadmill effect of the underlying decline rate but this idea that you're going to spend 130% or even 100% of your business over time uh, from a reinvestment rate it's just unsustainable
0: yeah i mean that's those are big numbers well, i mean 130% that's just a scary number it has to be the executives clearly were saying, well, we're going to spend that money now and eventually we're going to stop and start pulling money out, right?
2: That was always the story. And, um, you know, that was, that was kind of my increasing frustration at uh, Wellington is, is we were sitting there after the 2016 downturn um, and by late 16, early 17, the rig count had already doubled off the bottom and they went right back to, to outspending cash flow to try to grow production. Despite the fact that nine months earlier, oil had, had gone into the 30s. And it had to do with this availability of capital. And, and what you increasingly learn in this sector is that if you give uh, an oil executive a dollar, they'll find a way to put it into the ground. And <laughs> we're trying to put some some parameters around that, some guardrails uh, with more prescriptive capital allocation framework and say you shouldn't be spending above 70%. Um, and, and that should be your starting point for the discussion.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, that is a. Uh, it's a shocking number it doesn't surprise me though Tim I mean you you know right we go, go into ahead. a place and I, I hear this from the ceos and private and and public companies saying um totally I could buy your software I think it's great but if I have two million bucks I'm drilling wells man <laughs> I mean that's that's where it's going and uh, you know that's that's the historic mindset and I think that, that we hopefully see a shift I
0: really yeah, it's do. funny i I always wanted when I was at slumberjay I always tried this but Is there a way we can get the software embedded in a Wells AFE? Exactly. Just hide it in the AFE because, you know, the expenses are so high and they get it allocated. But, you know, obviously that wouldn't work. They got too smart for that. So
1: (laughs) everybody tries that. That's the golden goose,
0: man. (laughs) That's right. So, Mark, I just want to. All right. What the heck is a dedicated activist fund? I mean, how do you are you how do you run that? What do you do with it? How do you engage to be an activist with a fund?
2: Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll I'll back up a little bit. Talk about my decision to leave Wellington, join Cambridge, and that'll hopefully frame kind of what we're doing on the activist side. Um, but, sure. but obviously, feel free to ask any questions along along the way. So, you know, like I talked about, I had spent spent seventeen years at Wellington, I'd been investing in oil and gas, and, and like a lot of people, unfortunately, came to the realization the sector was broken, and and the the companies had had destroyed so much value chasing shale growth. Um, and then, increasingly, investors were concerned about the energy transition. This idea that oil was going to go away in the next decade or so, and and um, had no 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 desire to engage um, in, in in public securities anymore. So, I had tried to help reform the sector when I was at Wellington, and, and given our size, and you know, we had access to the CEOs and boards of these companies, but but they just didn't get it. They had had their head in the, in the sand, uh, particularly around these long-term structural issues. That I thought, you know, whether it was ESG or the energy transition more specifically were going to weigh on investor sentiment. But one of the mm-hmm. things I had seen when I was at Wellington was that when activist investors got involved, there there was this, you know, the public pressure on the boards and management teams to change. And, and you saw a real acceleration of, of that change. It, it proved to be a true catalyst for change. So so I knew that's what the sector needed. It just wasn't possible at a place like Wellington. They weren't set up. Operationally or organizationally for for activism, they didn't want a public profile. It's one of the more private uh, asset management firms out there. And I thought Kim Ridge provided the right platform. they had already established a reputation around activism with with some prior campaigns. and and that in-house technical team, I thought provided a real differentiated degree of of credibility. So so my role at Kim Ridge is is I oversee the public equities and and, and I manage a strategy that's focused on, reforming the public EMP companies we're invested in through direct engagement with the companies and if necessary, activism. And <laughs> um, you know, at at its core, what activists do is is they acquire stakes in, in companies to influence how they're run. You know, they typically do that by trying to obtain seats on its board of directors. And, and as a public company, as you guys know, the, the shareholders are the owners of the company and they have the right to vote for who they want to represent them as directors. So in an activist campaign, you're you're trying to convince investors that your nominees are more qualified and and would better represent their interests than, than the current director. So that that's really what activism is at its core.
1: And and we're we're seeing a lot of that, right? I mean, I know Ben Dell serves on some boards. Are you on any boards of oil and gas companies? Is that part of the plan, or can you talk no, about?
2: No, um, so you know that that could be the plan down the line, but but so far I haven't I haven't put myself up uh, for nomination on any of the boards. But yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously the, the the high profile campaign in the industry more recently was is the Exxon uh campaign you you, you saw engine number no. 1 and and DE Shaw making a lot of noise around the need for reform at at Exxon and and yeah. and I, we'll see more of it i'm going to walk this
0: back and play uh dunderhead cuz you know i want to make sure of this but you as an investment group generically you're going to take an activist approach you want to influence a company to go do something so you go get enough shares, get, you know, and then make your case. But you're still, as an investor, trying to make money on it, right? It's not just a push for you want it to go green or go do, you know, research algae production or whatever. It's still in an effort to be profitable, right?
2: Exactly. I mean, this is, this is not mission-based. Uh, this is about making money for our LPs. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're, we're highly attuned to, to the valuations that, that we're paying to get into these stocks. Uh, we have our views on what they're worth. Um, and we think we can, uh, create more value by influencing these companies to, to adopt the right principles. And that's, uh, we call, we, we wrote these white papers last year and we referred to our, our three pillars of reform and they were the operating model. The operating model is what we were talking about, the lower reinvestment rates, having more of a return of capital strategy than than just trying to grow profitless production. Uh, The the second pillar is governance, and that's really about creating better alignment and accountability at at the CEO and and board level. And then the third is environmental stewardship, which is if you're going to be um, in a capital, uh, sorry, in a carbon intensive industry like oil and gas, you need to have a strategy that's aligned with the energy transition around reducing emissions intensity. So those are the th- three things that we're, we're trying to affect through our investments. And we think ultimately it can lead to higher valuations for the companies. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, pretty basic stuff, right? Yeah. Be, be a better business, be a cleaner business, uh, be more aligned with uh, compensation of, of uh, you know, the profitability of the organization makes perfect sense to me. I think
0: when but when people hear about activism, they instantly run to okay, wait a minute, we're you're gonna be just to go shut down a pipeline or something right. like that. You're thinking you're the word is thrown around with in different ways. So that's just want I want to get that out there that it's still about making good decisions for your investors to turn a profit, not just to go no one's gonna become a activist investor to shut Exxon down, right?
2: No, no. So yeah, I mean that's that's the the issue with the word activism. Sometimes you'll hear activism used as far as environmental activists, um, and and that's obviously really kind of mission based, um, you know, comp- uh, trying to solve solve an issue, uh, not trying to make money as an investment. And then you have the the, the kind of historic connotation of, of activists, which is kind of the, the Gordon Gecko uh, Wall Street kind of break apart the company and and kind of. Uh, extract value through different means of portfolio management at the company. Um, what we're really trying to do is just position these companies uh, for what we see as as an emerging risk around the energy transition, that they it's a maturing industry. It's got a terminal value risk that people are increasingly concerned about. They're concerned about the environmental footprint. Uh, we think by addressing those, when you have a sector that's trading at historically low multiples, you can make money for your investors. That, that's really our basic strategy.
1: Well thought out. So I want to, I want to shift it to bean town. I want to talk Boston for a second. So one of the things that I've always noticed is, is people don't really understand the oil and gas industry there. So when you, I mean, when bars were a, a thing, uh, up there and, and you were going out to, you know, the Trillium brewery, one of my favorite places on earth there in Fort point and sitting down, um, do do you have to educate people on what oil and gas is and the financial aspects of it? Or do you feel like people up there have a fundamental understanding? Because it's much different than a place like Texas.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the perception of of the oil and gas industry in, in more liberal parts of the country like Boston, I mean, it's clearly deteriorated from when I first got involved in the sector. And surely I'll, I'll admit I don't lead. Lead a conversation at a cocktail party with the fact that I'm <laughs> in oil and gas, um, but I also don't shy away from it, and and I actually welcome the debate on on divestment versus engagement, you know, what we're doing, because I'm just a big believer that abandoning the sector doesn't actually do anything for the environment. We're, we're still going to use the same amount of oil and gas, um, so I actually think you can have a lot more impact uh, trying to reform the industry than trying to abandon it. Um, but but you know, I think a lot of it is you know it comes from from ignorance and and, and people not truly yeah. understanding. Um, what goes into delivering oil and gas to the consumer? I, I have to admit, when I first started covering the sector, I was I was in awe of it. You know, the scale, the complexity, just everything it takes to extract the resource out of the ground, deliver it to your to your car, you know, for less than the price of a gallon of milk. I, I mean, remember this was kind of pre shell when I started. So the industry was moving to 30,000 foot offshore wells that take two hundred days to drill and I mean, it, 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 I was watching the, the Deepwater Horizon movie with my wife one day, the, the one with Mark Wahlberg. And she turned to me and she said, this is really what it takes to get oil out. And, and she had no idea. And I don't think most people do. It's just, it's just mind blowing when you step back and think about it. And the consumer used to complain if, if gasoline was $4 instead of $3 a, a gallon. It's, it's, it's something that I don't think, you know, honestly, I don't think the industry has done a good job telling that, that story. It's lost that public debate. And I think it needs to earn back the respect of the consumer. And I, it ties back to the, to the original conversation we were having around resource scarcity, which is when everybody thinks oil is just easy and you just kind of open a tap and it comes out of these shale wells, um, no, nobody has appreciation and respect for the, for the process and for the economics. So I think that's ultimately going to have to be an education for the consumer.
1: Agreed. I think it's kind of people view it almost like manufacturing, because I think the industry is trying to present it going in that direction with more predictable drilling costs and things of that nature. But even so... If it is manufacturing, it's very complex manufacturing, a lot of science that goes into it.
2: Exactly. And 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 I think the, you know, the, the variability, uh, the, the the degradation and resource quality over time, I mean, these are all issues that I think are going to come out um, as the shale industry matures.
0: And I think the, you know, as far as educating the public, I think that the oil and gas industry has probably lost their capability of being able to do it now. That was lost probably in the 90s, that <laughs> the downturn in the 80s and 90s, they, they isolated and, and really focused internally and, and, and allowed other people to control the dynamics. And now there's I don't think there's going to be a way for them to get that back.
2: Yeah, I think the only way you get it back is with price, because when the, the conversation changes back to we have an issue on domestic supply that we need higher oil prices, uh, we need to encourage supply growth. Um, there, there's a different degree of respect for what the industry delivers than, than what we've had now, which is essentially the industry is subsidized. The consumer through that capital allocation of spending way more than they should have, right? So that 130 percent of cash flow artificially substituted uh, the economics of shale, and and I think as the true economics come out over time, and there's more of an appreciation um, that that the consumer relies on this industry to, to produce cheap, abundant resources. I, I I do think the conversation can change, but it may be too little, too late.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's exactly what I was going to say the clock is ticking on that, so. Go ahead, Tim.
0: Now I was just going to say the, you know, I remember, Jeremy, I don't know if you remember this, when I took you out to Bakersfield and drove you around, I drove you through the Kern River Field. Of course. And and I don't know, uh, Mark, if you've seen this place, but it's, you know, an active steam flood. They've got pipes running all over the ground. And there must be, within sight of the highway we're on, there must be a thousand wells just right there. And it's just a very industrial but spread out. And, you know, and I think to the Californian, They've seen this. That's what the oil and gas industry is, is this sprawling, industrial, no vegetation place. Yeah. And, you know, you just don't get that. Now you go to Long Beach, California, and you can be next to five or six wells and not even know it. But we as an industry have not, you know, we've just done a poor job of really, I think, describing what's going on. And, of course, you know, the other part that's incredibly difficult is you're trying to hit. I'm I'm sitting in a bedroom, what, a 14 by 14 bedroom here as we record this. We're talking about drilling a well from five miles away or four miles away and hitting a spot that's this big, a 14 by 14 spot. Amazing. That's just so challenging.
2: Big time. I yeah, know it's, it's – uh, the, the technology – um, and 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 the the evolution of, of the shale industry has has been remarkable. I mean, when you think about it from an operational perspective, it's truly been remarkable. The problem, as you know, is is from a financial perspective, it's been a disaster. And 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 um, we we need those two to catch up. Yeah, exactly.
1: Hopefully, it will. And I think you guys are doing a, a good thing trying to bring this level of accountability, especially with publicly traded companies, because then it's it's far more visible. So um, I do want to ask you real quick. Um, you grew up in New York, you're raising your, your family in Boston. Have you guys shifted to being, you know, Sox, Patriots, Celtics fans, or are you uh, keeping them with those uh, horrible New York teams? <laughs>
2: uh, definitely, definitely was a challenge early on. I, I, I grew up a Mets fan in, in the eighties. Um, yeah. and as you can imagine, when I moved here, there, there were still quite a, quite a few sore Red Sox fans. Oh, for sure. Um they got over that eventually when they, when they won their first world series. And then I think they hated the Yankees so much that you almost kind of bonded together as Red Sox fans against the evil empire. Um, And, and uh, the benefit I had is I grew up in the eighties as a, as a Celtics fan, I was a big Larry Bird fan. So, so that was the one team when I moved to Boston, I I was uh, able to adopt. Um, And, and uh, it was great to be here for the, for the the championship. Um, And uh, you know, it's, it's 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 good to see Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. I'm not a, I'm not a Patriots yeah. fan, um, you know, but but you have to respect what he's done. Um, I uh, it, it's somewhat humbling. We're actually the, the same age, and I see what he's able to do
1: wow.
2: uh, athletically at his age, and it's uh, definitely humbling. But um, you know, I, I, I give him a, a lot of credit uh, to have the success he's had of, of six Super Bowls to to kind of be at the top of that list of all time quarterbacks, um, but to never. Never ease up. Um, he's never complacent. Um, just love him or hate him. You have to respect that.
0: Mark, you got to know that right now there are tears in Jeremy's eye over his left shoulder. <laughs> you have a Sports Illustrated picture of Tom Brady in his Pats uniform just sitting there. This You're on to his
1: number <sighs> one subject. Thank you, Mark. Because we got the Super Bowl coming up. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us Pats fans are pulling for for Brady and, and Gronk and, and the Tampa team. So, Man, Mark, this was a, a ton of fun. I uh, learned a lot from you. I think I have a better sense of what the hell Cambridge actually does and and uh, your your message and your mission. So I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for coming on and uh, keep doing good work for this industry.
2: Well, I appreciate that and uh, really enjoyed the conversation today. So let's stay in touch.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.